Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 podcast, the podcast where we explore the origins and development of the pre-crisis DC multiverse and the legacy of Golden Age characters throughout the Silver and Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Today we are looking at a story from issue 347 of Detective Comics, which was published on the 25th of November 1965 with a cover date of January 1966. It's a gorgeous cover by Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson. Pete's going to tell us all about it. Yes, we have got a crying Robin front and centre on the cover. Oh, boo-hoo. I know, and he's holding up a newspaper and it says it's the Gotham City Press and the headline is Extra Batman Killed. And indeed, there is a photograph of dead Batman. (laughs) Shocking. Shocking. (laughs) Dead Batman. The only good Batman is a dead Batman. (laughs) And Robin's crying through his mask and swearing, I'll bring your killer in, Batman. I swear it. There's quite a lot of text on this cover, isn't there? Yeah, there is. The caption at the top says, There's never been a story like this. There never will be another. The strange death of Batman. And at the bottom it says, Warning! Do not reveal the surprise ending of this story to your friends. They'll want to get the same kick out of it that you did. So we recommend you don't listen to the rest of this podcast because we're going to spoil the heck out of this. Yes. (laughs) Spoiler warning. You're going to find out what's happened and why Batman got killed, etc. This is an interesting sort of story because when we were doing our preparation, we sort of flagged it up for a reason, yes. which will become obvious as we read on. But mm-hmm. it's also kind of relevant and important for another reason. Which we'll get on to again later on. <laughs> so, shall we get started on the story? Let's go for it. So we have a nice opening splash page, and we should say that, again, the story is drawn by Carmine Infantino and inked mm-hmm. by Murphy Anderson. Batman is in the foreground of the panel, clutching his hand to his chest. Robin is running towards him, yelling, Batman! There's a weird sort of smudgy brown guy in the background, sort of flying overhead, who's saying, Batman's had it, Robin. You're the next to die when we meet again. And we see a gun falling to the ground. I wonder if Batman's been shot. There's a huge big text piece on the right-hand side of the splash panel. Which says, Sometimes, in his dreams, Robin has a nightmarish premonition that sometime, someplace, he or Batman might fall prey to the bullet of a criminal. And now, that dread instant is upon him. Batman is dead. Batman is dead. Pounds the rhythm of his thudding heart. He scarcely hears the threat hurled at him by the bouncer. For the boy wonder is thunderstricken by... The Strange strange Death of Batman. And at the bottom, we have got an amazing classic Carmine Infantino hand coming out of a caption box with a big stop motion sign that says, Warning, do not peek at the last few pages of this offbeat story. For full enjoyment, start at the beginning and read on to its surprise conclusion. That's obviously aimed at people like me, because 20 years ago, thereabouts, when the Jeff Johns, James Robinson, Stephen Sadowski revived JSA comic was getting published, huh. and I would walk into FP every Thursday morning that JSA was out, and I would go straight to the last page. <laughs> <laughs> and my gasps could be heard the length of Buchanan Street. <laughs> what I used to always do is read the last page, and then go back and just savour the rest and figure out, how do we get to this last page? Shocking. Absolutely shocking. Right, so, into the story proper then. 
A jewel messenger, his attaché case chained to his manacled wrist, crosses the sidewalk toward the house of Winsley. Around him in the early evening, gaping eyes turn skyward. And this is quite a middly lit panel, actually. You see the chap with the case handcuffed to his wrist in the foreground, and there's a couple of members of the public. There's a man with a hat, and he's saying, Look up there, what's that? And there's a woman next to him, and she's saying, It's falling from the roof. Caption for the next panel says, Carrying a fortune in uncut diamonds, the messenger ignores the commotion around him. And as we see people looking up the sky in sort of surprise and horror, the jewel messenger walks on thinking, Can't let anything divert me from my business at hand. The caption for the next panel says, Doubled up like the giant rubber ball he resembles, gathering speed as he falls comes a costumed figure. And this is the guy that we saw in the splash panel. At first, when I was reading this, I thought he, he reminded me very much of Clayface, as uh-huh. we saw him recently in World's Finest. Did you find that, Peter? Yeah, I know what you mean. Imagine a man has just been dipped in brown paint, and he's curled up in a, in a ball, and he's falling towards the ground, and that's obviously what the people are looking up at. And the caption for the next panel says, Faster, ever faster, he hurtles groundward, rotating so swiftly that he blurs before the eyes of the onlookers. And from almost a point of view shot of the people looking up on the pavement, we see the brown man fumbling towards them, and the woman on the pavement shouts, Get out of his way! And the man on the pavement with the hat who we saw in the first panel, he says, he, He'll be killed! The caption for the next panel. His body uncoils as his feet hit the ground close to the jewel messenger. One arm grips him as the other hits him, all in the winking of an eye. And in a very fast and fluid panel, we get the motion of the brown man, <laughs> who we'll just tell you is called... The bouncer. We'll just tell you that now because it means I'm not seeing the brown man every two seconds. (laughs) We see the motion and movement of the bouncer hitting the ground and uncoiling as he springs towards the jewel messenger. There's a lovely little sock sound effect as he punches the jewel messenger in the face, dislodging his hat, and we see the jewel case, which is still handcuffed to his wrist, sort of moving around. Then, rebounding like the human ball he is, he springs upward with victim and loot in his clutches. Sure enough, the panel tells us what we see, the bouncer soaring up into the air, holding the jewel messenger under his arms. On to page three. Landing on a roof, the criminal pauses only long enough to sever the chain holding the attaché case. Then, hitting the roof hard with his unique boots, he bounces upward in a graceful curve. And again, yeah, that's what we see. He bounces up. There's a big sign saying hotel in the background. And off he goes, and he's thinking to himself, Now for my roof-to-roof getaway. Caption for the next panel. Such is the startling appearance of the bouncer, and from then on begins a series of fabulous crimes that cry a challenge to Batman and Robin, as they make their nightly patrol of Gotham City. The next panel is a cracker. We see the bouncer bouncing from the pavement on the roof of a building, and and in the background, we see the Batmobile screeching to a halt. And Robin says, There he goes, taking off like some super kangaroo. We spotted him too late. And Batman says, We'll catch up to him another night, Robin. Sooner or later, his path and ours will meet. The caption for the next panel says, As the masked manhunter avers, it is inevitable that criminal and crime busters should cross paths. And so, on a rainy evening in late autumn near a wharfside warehouse... And we see Batman and Robin emerging from the Batmobile in the middle of heavy rain. And we can see the bouncer tumbling down towards them. Batman says, Here he comes, as if defying us to nab him. And Robin says, All I ask is one crack at him, and we'll see how much bounce to the ounce he has. So precisely does the Cowl Crusader time his onrush with the dropping bouncer. This is a great panel, isn't it? The, The rain is coming down, cats and dogs. The bouncer zooms into the frame. 
Batman punches him with a giant sort of thud sound effect, and Batman thinks, Caught him before he could land and bound away from me. Caption for the next panel says, But the follow-up instant. And we see Batman thinking, I drove him away from me as if I punched a real rubber ball. And sure enough, the bouncer is flying off in the opposite direction. And it's quite a nice high-angle panel here. Yeah. Almost like we're looking down from the rooftops, down at the quay. We can see the, the rain sort of lashing and there's posts and stuff. And Lovely. So we move on to page four. As he slams hard into the warehouse wall, the bouncer's resilient body flattens for a brief instant. And with a thump, we see the bouncer colliding with the wall and he spreads his arms out. And he thinks, Here's where the punch ball strikes back. And the next caption says, Resuming his shape, he ricochets off the wall and into the teenage thunderbolts. And as the rain continues to come down, sure enough, with a zing, the bouncer flies off the wall and collides with Robin. And the bouncer says, This is no kid game we're playing, Robin. And when he collides with Robin, Robin lets out a... What up? <laughs> Tremendous. We're not really doing this justice. This is quite a fast-paced little exchange. The caption for panel three says, Like a maddened handball... The bouncer moves from wall to wall. And that's what happens. The bouncer bounces off the surrounding walls. We can see Robin is down on the ground. Batman casting a lovely shadow is thinking. If he ever slows down, I'll take the bounce out of him by double punching him from opposite directions. So this panel, I have to say, mm-hmm. is, is very reminiscent of kind of Silver Age Captain America with like Captain America's shield bouncing off of all, like, all the different walls before it hits the bad guys, do you not think? Yeah, definitely. Or Cyclops' uh, optic beams, uh-huh. you know, but more so, uh, I would say, Captain America's shield. Yeah, that, that ricochet sort of momentum sort of stuff, yeah, it's brilliant. Uh-huh, cool. So the caption for panel four of page four says, Whap, thump, whack, goes the bouncer as he ricochets back and forth with eye-blinding speed until a well-chosen moment when... And we see him colliding with Batman with a thud, forcing him against the wall, and Batman thinks, He curveballed me. So the bottom panel of page four shows Robin and Batman both being lashed by the rain. Robin's rubbing his forehead as he recovers. Batman is crouched and the caption says, This time as the bouncer hits a wall, he controls his angle of contact to propel him upward into the sky, leaving his foes dazed, staggered by the swiftness of his onslaught. And as the bouncer bounces away in the background, Robin is saying, The ball game's over. He shut us out. And Batman says, He got all the hits, and we made all the errors. (laughs) Pete, have you been studying your Batman 66 DVD box set in preparation for this? I mean to each time, but you know what? I always forget. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so a slow dissolve now to page five. Soon after, the glum duo is inside the Batcave. Batman is seated. He's taken off his cape and cowl. Robin is standing in front of him, and Batman... Looks a bit fed up. He's rubbing his he's rubbing his leg. He's obviously pulled a muscle. It's been quite a strenuous battle with the bouncer. And Batman is saying, <laughs> "Let's make with the review, Robin. Tell me what you've dug about elasticity." Well, elasticity is that property of an object which enables it to resist deforming forces and to regain its original shape after those forces are removed. That explains why a rubber ball bounces. Odd as it may seem. A steel ball has more bounce than a rubber ball on a surface hard enough for it to lose its round shape. My guess is the bouncer has discovered a means of using his costume to pull his amazing bouncing ball tricks. The next panel, there's a caption, and the caption has a little hourglass motif at the side of it, which I think is generally telling us that we're we're into flashback territory. And the caption says, 
The trail, the dynamic duo seeks to follow, began more than a year before when a young metallurgist stumbled onto an alloy of rubber, steel and chrome as a result of five long years of study. And we see the man who would become the bouncer. It's quite an interesting outfit, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, almost like a topless pirate. That's a really good way of putting it. He has a sort of sash around his waist. His trousers are a little bit too short. And he's little boots and little socks. And he's standing in front of sort of a furnace that's belching smoke out his chimney. And he's something in his hand, which he's going to tell us about as he thinks. If I'm right, this special mixture, which I call elastaloy, ought to bounce higher than anything yet known to man. The caption for the next panel says, He hurled his elastaloy lump down upon a metal base and it all watched it rise high, ever higher, into the air until it became lost to sight. The next panel has the point of view being quite high up in the sky and we can see the, the man who would become the bouncer down on the ground just doing what the caption says. And the elast alloy is zooming up into the air. I quite like, there's a nice little touch actually it zooms past the caption box. That's quite funny. Yes, that's very cool. Yeah, it's nice. And the man who would be the bouncer exclaims, Wowee, it took off like a rocket. And the caption for the next panel says, Six more months of study and experiment resulted in a specially woven suit of elastoloy that fit the criminal-minded metallurgist like a second skin. And this panel is angled quite interestingly. If you're holding your copy of Detective Comics 347 and you tilt it 45 degrees to the left, it becomes a bit clearer because it's clear that the man who is now the bouncer is hurling himself against the ceiling with <laughs> head first with full force and he's thinking Elastoloy has the added property of protecting me from shock so that I can bounce tremendous distances or from great heights yet not be harmed at all. And the caption for the next panel says To meet this radical new criminal, Batman and Robin prepare special equipment and once again renew their search for the Bounding Bandits. One night... The Bounding Bandit. I like that. And this panel shows the Batmobile screeching to a halt outside a large building. And from the Batmobile, Robin declares, That shadow on the museum wall! The Bouncer! Here's where he gets his lumps! And Batman says, I hope so, but just in case, you handle the camera work. We move to the top of page six. Through a glass window, sixty feet above the street, the rubber ball bandit crashes, falling swiftly toward his rendezvous with robbery. Excellent. And this panel shows the bouncer crashing through the window and we can see all the works of art on the walls around the museum. In through the doorway hurtles the crime-smashing couple as the masked manhunter lets fly with a great cast. And we see the bouncer dropping jewels into a sack that he's carrying as Batman casts a net bowler towards him. As that snare snakes outward and down upon him, the bouncer hits the ground hard even as Batman lifts out a special electric switch. The bouncer attempts to take off and we can see that there's an electrical cord attached to the netballer which is also attached to Batman's utility belt. And as the bouncer takes off, he says, Back again, Batman, to play catch as catch can. You're a sure loser. And the Cape Crusader is thinking, When I switch on the power, the net will become electrified. And sure enough, the caption of the next panel says, But as the paralyzing electricity surges through the snare, the bouncer rebounds off the ceiling, angling his fall towards a hanging chandelier. Sure enough, that's what we see, and as the bouncer carries out this movement, he's thinking, My uniform can protect me only so long. The caption of the next panel says, The chandelier intercepts the net, holds it firmly, as the bounding bandit drops free of its sizzling strands. And we can see that the netballer 
now sort of tangled up in the chandelier is starting to spark with electricity coming off it because obviously Batman's activated his clever device. Shocking. Um, there's a, I quite like that panel. It's oddly reminiscent of the way the TV show would flip the horizontal by a few degrees. So uh-huh, it's like, the Dutch tilt. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely what's going on here as well because... I'm having to tilt my cog of Detective 347 45 degrees to the right this time to be clear what's going on. And as the bouncer falls away from the netbola, sparking off the chandelier, he thinks, Oh, Batman almost had me. We move now to the top of page 7. There's a side panel, the caption that says, He hits the floor and soars off with his loot as a bat rope and a batarang bounce harmlessly off his Elastolaw uniform. And sure enough, it's a great panel. We can see Batman and Robin on the floor of the museum hurling their equipment up towards the bouncer, who is soaring up into the air, still carrying his sack of jewels, and he's saying out loud, You made this escape of mine too close to suit me, Batman. Next time we meet, I'll be the one who gets you. Close-up of Robin for the next panel now, the caption says, A wry grin creases the lips of the boy wonder. And we got a lovely close-up of Robin holding a camera, and he says, We failed to nab him again, but at least we accomplished a part of our programme. This spectroscopic camera has analysed the material out of which he made his jumpsuit. In the days that follow, Batman and Robin hide themselves from the world, analysing their photographic clue. And we see Batman and Robin hard at work in Batman's laboratory. Robin's going through files in the cabinet. Batman is hunched over the desk and he says, That does it, Robin. We've learned enough about the special alloy in the bouncer's uniform to determine how to strain it beyond its elastic limits. And in close-up, the Cape Crusader continues. After exposure to an elastic limit stress, an object is no longer able to retain its original shape and size. That's the key to the way we must overcome the bouncer. The next panel is heralded by a caption saying, They have forgotten the world, but the world has not forgotten the gang-busting gladiators. Newspaper headlines scream out the disappointment of a city. And it's a lovely little sort of montage panel of newspaper headlines with a bouncer flying in front of them. The Daily Events front page is saying, Is Batman slipping? And the Daily Herald says, Great crime fighter meets his match. The next newspaper says, Bouncer threatens Batman. And the final headline we say, Where is Batman when the bouncer strikes? And that newspaper just appears to be called Evening. Tremendous. So the bottom panel of page 7 and the caption says, When once again the Batmobile patrols the darkened streets of Gotham City, it is followed by a second car. And that's what we see. There's a big purple saloon following the Batmobile. Robin says, from inside the Batmobile, Who's our shadow? Batman replies, A newspaper cameraman. I gave permission for one to tag along, provided he shares his shots with other papers and the news services. They all expect us to fail again. There is understandable bitterness in the Cal Crusader's voice. He has never failed his hometown. Why should it turn on him in this manner? And then bitterness fades before excitement as... And the Batmobile is pulled up with Batman and Robin climbing out of the car because the bouncer is bouncing down in front of them. And Batman says, Robin, here he comes. Take your assigned position. The caption of the next panel says... The bouncer drops lightly on his feet and when he uncoils from his rubber ball shape... He is holding a gun. Now the gun is pointed at Batman and the bouncer declares, I know you're behind me, Robin. Make the slightest move against me 
and Batman will be gunned down before... Batman cuts him off, saying, You've got it all wrong, Bouncer. I've given Robin orders not to attack you from behind. This is strictly between the two of us. The caption for the next panel. Like strange dogs, they circle one another, none of them making their first move to attack. Robin is lurking in the background as Batman and the Bouncer start to circle round, and the Bouncer says, Shooting you outright is too easy, Batman. I'm not going to pull this trigger. I've arranged to kill you in true bouncer style. The caption for the next panel. During the manoeuvring, Batman has not been idle. He has been doing a mental countdown. Suddenly, he leaps forward, fists humming with pent-up energy. And we see Batman thinking... Zero. Batman is moving forward with a fist towards the bouncer's face, but the bouncer is throwing his gun at the wall behind Batman. And bouncer is thinking... Batman's made his move. And I've made mine. When my elastoloid gun hits that wall, it will bounce off and fire the fatal bullet that ends Batman's career. And the caption for the bottom panel of page 8 says, The gun slams into the wall, but, instead of rebounding, caves in upon itself. And with a lovely plop sound effect, that's what we see, the gun hitting the wall. Yeah, It's awesome. I'm a big fan of plop, the comic. Yes. And the sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> I heard that rumour. It's a great panel because the gun just basically collapses with the force when it's been thrown against the wall. So, we move on to the top of page nine. Where a bullet might have travelled, now only the fist of the Cowl Crusader thuds home upon its target. A great close-up panel of Batman punching a bouncer in the face, swift left hook, and Batman is saying, Bouncer, your bouncing days are over. And the caption for the next panel says, An excited cameraman races up to get the story of the crime-busting couple's success at combat. And this panel shows the bouncer out for the count on the pavement, Batman standing over him, casting a Batman-shaped shadow. It's tremendous. Robin is moving in, and so is the press photographer. And the press photographer says, I got it all on film, but what happened? Batman replies, We froze the bounce out of the bouncer. Induction heating by passing a high-frequency beam through any object passed between two electrodes has been known for some time. And the next panel, we've got a lovely sides close-up of Robin, who continues. Batman varied that process by developing a special beam that quick-freezes an object situated between two electrodes we wore under our costumes. We circled about as the cold beam travelled between our electrodes and through the bouncer. When Batman counted down the time needed to rob his uniform and gun of their elasticity, whammo! It was all over. And then we have a final little caption box with a couple of carmine hands poking out. The first one is sort of almost questioning because the caption says, Stories end? Well, no, dear reader. There is more to this strange story. Please turn to the next chapter where the story's author himself carries on. And there's another little hand at the bottom of the, the caption box pointing us in the direction of the third page following. Now, the rest of page nine is filled up with an advert for the Teen Titans. It says here they're off and running, fresh from their debut in Showcase. The Teen Titans now join the great line of DC stars in their own book. First gala issue on sale November the 18th. There we go. We have a full page subscription advert, which is Metamorpho, encouraging you to take out a subscription for titles including Army at War, Wonder Woman, Bob Hope, our Fighting Forces, Unexpected, Tomahawk, Sugar and Spikes, Superboy, Fox and Crow, Jamie Olsen, Green Lantern, Detective, and many, many more. And then the next page has a half-page advert from a Superman 80-page giant, which looks pretty cool. And then we move to the top of story page number 10, and the caption which reads, The, the Strange, strange death, death of Batman, Batman Chapter, chapter 2. two.
So now, listeners, you may be wondering why we've been doing this story. Because so far, there's been no mention of a superhero being transported somewhere by electricity or other means. <laughs> there hasn't been a mention of a Golden Age DC Comics character who's reappearing for the first time. We're going to find out why. So at the top of page 10, we see a gentleman with his glasses pushed up on his forehead as he leans back from his typewriter. Obviously in his study, we can see little books and a little statue and files all around him. And the caption says, My fingers fall from the typewriter keys. I stretch and let the creative tension ooze away. My name is Gardner Fox, one of the writers of the Batman stories. And Gardner continues to think to himself, That winds up another Batman yarn. I just hope the readers go for the bouncer and Batman's way of overcoming him. Caption for the next panel, Gardner continues to think, In a little while I'll double-check my script and mail it, but right now, as I sometimes do when I complete a yarn, I'm going into my what-if room. And the panel shows... Gardner opening the door to another room, which is a large mirror and a sofa. And he crosses to the sofa. The caption for the next panel. What is a what-if room? It's where I relax after finishing a story and play a mental game with myself. I stretch out in my couch and begin asking myself questions about the story just completed. And as Gardner reclines on his couch, he thinks to himself, Hmm, what if things hadn't gone quite the way I conveniently made them happen? In close-up, he says out loud, I'm sure you all have wondered from time to time, what if things had gone differently? What if I hadn't taken that trip? Or what if I'd never met such and such a person? I play this game here in my what if room. Now concerning the story I just finished. Remember now, this is only a game, an exercise of the imagination. The story of the bouncer ended with his defeat. But what if the bouncer knew what Batman and Robin were up to? How would that have affected the outcome of the story. Now, this is a bit different, isn't it? Yes. This is way before Marvel's What If, but Gartner seems to have invented the format. Yeah. As we turn the page. Yeah, so at the top of page 11, and there's a narrator panel which is in the shape of a sort of slightly stretched silhouette of Gardner Fox. It's, it's great, isn't funny. it? Carmine's so good at this sort of thing. It's absolutely amazing. Yes. I mean, I've, I've made a lot of comments recently about how some of the Superman family stories that we've done have felt very uh -huh. disposable and very... Yeah, almost phoned in, but this is the opposite. There's obvious with this what's going on here that they've they've thought right. Uh -huh. How can we give the readers something different? So anyway, this yeah. this caption panel is obviously suggesting to us that it's still Gardner who's talking. So the caption says, "Come back with me now in my imagination to that critical moment when the bouncer found himself between Batman and Robin, waiting for their freezer beam to destroy the elasticity of the elastoloy uniform." So this panel takes us back to the story at that point when Robin and Batman were circling the bouncer. The bouncer in the middle of them. The bouncer is thinking to himself, What's this? My heartbeat's slowing down. I'm one of those medical curiosities who possesses a triple heart. Thus, I can always hear it beating. And there's a little asterisk at triple heart and a side author's note box out which says, Such rare instances have been reported by the ephemerides and in various medical books and journals. Gardner Fox's captioned thoughts continue. Naturally, if such were the case, the bouncer would not wait for Batman to freeze his uniform. He would hurl his elastoloy gun before it became affected by the cold. And we see the same events, but from a slightly different angle. Batman is moving in towards the bouncer. The bouncer is throwing his gun forward and thinking, My own experiments have taught me my heart only slows down when it is very cold. And since the elastoloy compound will also be affected by intense cold, I'd better act now. So yes, he's hurling his gun forward. In the next panel we see the gun collide with the wall, probably how he intended in the first place, mm -hmm. and it fires with a blam, shooting Batman in the back. 
And Garner's thought caption continues. Fast as Batman as he leaps in, but even faster is the bullet from the elastoloid gun as it bounces off the wall. The caption for the next panel. Off goes the bouncer, soaring high and far, shouting down his threat at a heartbroken boy whose scream of disbelief almost drowns out that terrible threat. And we're basically at the opening splash panel of the whole story now. The bouncer leaping off in the background, Batman tumbling to the ground, stricken, and Robin rushing towards him crying, Batman! And the bouncer is saying, Batman's had it, Robin. You're the next to die when we meet again. The caption for the next panel says, Next day, the newspapers are filled with this tragic event. And we see Robin, exactly as he is in the cover, holding up the newspaper yep. with Batman killed on it, crying, tears streaming down his face, his masked face. And he's saying, I'll bring your killer in, Batman. I swear it. Oh, move to the top of page 12. The caption says, But the boy wonder must postpone that quest for justice as Earth superheroes gather to pay tribute to the first among them to fall victim to a criminal. And we see Robin with the Justice League. We see Superman and the Atom, Aquaman, Green Arrow and Green Lantern. And Superman says, I'll miss him more than I can say. And Green Lantern says, That goes for all of us, Robin. Gardner's thought caption for the next panel says, Grim tones echo the sentiments of the Justice League of America members as they seek to console the broken-hearted boy. We can see a few more heroes in this panel. We can see Hawkman in the background. In the foreground, we can see Flash and Wonder Woman, and the Flash says, We don't have to say it, Robin, Wonder Woman says. You know we'll go out and bring the bouncer in. And Robin responds by saying, No, please. This is a p personal thing with me. I must do it myself. If I fail, then do what you want. Slow dissolve. Gardner's caption continues. Soon Robin is hard at work in the lonely Batcave, seeking to drown out sorrow with hard work. There's a very moody panel as Robin is lit by an overhead light. He's working at a desk and he's thinking, Batman didn't have real elastoloy, or the killer gun, for example, to test when he devised his cold treatment for the bouncer. Now, instead of trying to cause his uniform to reach its elastic limit, I'll try to give it elastic fatigue. Close-up continues. Fatigue in metals is caused by stress. I can cause stress in the elastoloy by bombarding it with light and intense sound. Caption for the next panel. And so, when Robin sets out in the Batmobile, it is equipped with radar-like gadgets to bombard the bouncer with light and sound waves. When the bounding bandit appears... It's a great panel. See the moon in the sky as the Batmobile is prowling along, the bouncer falling into frame in front of it, and the bouncer is saying, Here I come, Robin. Ready or not? And Robin's thinking, Boy, am I ready! So we move to the top of page 13. Gardner's thought caption continues. The world seems to erupt before him as the bouncer is framed in that grim barrage of light waves and sound beams. And we can see the Batmobile has several bits of equipment sticking out. There's one at the back, one at the side. One at the side is flashing a bright light. And we can see that one at the back is generating a large Aye! sort of sound. We can see the bouncer is falling into to frame with his hand up at his head. He's obviously feeling a bit of discomfort from this light and sound barrage. The caption for the next panel. His feet hit the ground and under that impact, his elastoloid uniform cracks apart just as Robin wow. explodes a fist bomb beneath his chin. Robin punches out the bouncer and we can see that his, the sort of muds, if you like, that's covered. It looks like it's all dried and just cracking open. It's brilliant. So Robin knocks him out with a sock thinking, I've never put more feeling into a punch. And then the next panel has Gardner's face poking in. His hair's gone white since the last time we saw him, sadly. Gardner's narration continues. And so in this manner, Robin has meted out justice in my what-if story. But there is more to come, 
After turning the bouncer over to the authorities, the boy Wonder returns to the Batcave. When we see Robin, he's obviously framed the gun that killed Batman, and he's saying, If only we'd had this gun earlier, Batman would still be alive. What kind of life will it be without him? And then a voice from off-panel says, Life with Batman can still go on, Robin. Gardner's caption says, the teenage Thunderbolt stands frozen with emotion as a familiar voice resounds in the souvenir room. Hope, disbelief, amazement all hold him in their grip. And Robin has his hand up to his head and he's saying, I must be cracking under the strain. I'm beginning to hear voices. I'd have sworn that was Batman speaking to me. I am Batman, Robin. Turn around and see for yourself. That voice, like the last voice, has come from off-panel and has a little caption box which says, Remember, dear reader, we are playing a what-if game, but everything will be explained logically. Please continue. The Gardner's narration for the next panel says, Slowly he turns and his heart skips a beat as his eyes widen and his mouth goes dry. Standing before him is... And it's Batman and Robin exclaims, Batman! But it can't be you're dead! Who are you? The cowl is lifted off, revealing the familiar face of... And Robin looks stunned and he says, Bruce! I just don't understand. Is this all an hallucination? And Bruce Wayne, under the mask, says... I'm for real, Robin. I am Bruce Wayne as well as Batman. But I am the Bruce Wayne of Earth 2. Gasp! <laughs> he continues at the top of page 14. Earth 2 is a parallel world with yours, which we refer to as Earth 1. Everything that happens in one world is generally repeated on the other. There are exceptions, of course, as witness my being here alive. And where I come from, Robin is now an adult. My Earth 2 Robin urged me to come here to teach you the arts of fighting crime and criminals, as I have taught him. He has volunteered to carry on in my place as the new masked manhunter while I become the Batman of Earth 1, if it's agreeable to you. And how? says the delighted Robin, and Batman says, Good. And now I have prepared still another surprise. Look. And Gardner's narration voice says, Robin cries out as another never-to-be-forgotten person appears. Alfred! You weren't killed on Earth 2 as you were on Earth 1? Yep, and Alfred Pennyworth, the butler, is there. And Bruce Wayne is smiling, and Robin is smiling, and a smiling Alfred says, No, Master Robin, I'm here to serve you and Bruce Wayne as I have always done. Now, is there anything I can do for you? And the final caption says, You understand that none of this what-if story actually happens. It was merely an exercise of the imagination. The real Batman of Earth-1 is still alive. One final note. If you'd like to see more of these what-if stories, please write to the editor and tell him so. Address, editor, Batman, National Periodical Publications, 575 Lexington Avenue, New York. New York, 10022. Hooray! I suppose we don't even have... Is that it? We don't even have a the end? No, We don't even it. have a the end. No, that is it. The end was... The end! <laughs> so... The Strange Death of Batman. That was very exciting. Now, a few things really, really grabbed me from this story. First of all, you uh -huh. can tell exactly when this is. Carmine's art is, and the actual tone of this entire story, is very much like the uh, 60s Batman TV series. The whole thing just feels of that era. It's it's the almost pop art productions. You can almost hear like the soundtrack of the Batman TV series through it. Even although it's yeah. a character, the bouncer, who was never in the TV series. I adore Carmine's Batman stuff. I really do. It's just mm -hmm. epic. It just brings a total different kind of fluidity 
to the character. It's more upbeat. It feels, I hate to say it, but it feels less silly. If you know what I mean, because before we'd had like Batman fighting aliens quite a bit and that sort of thing. Yes. But this feels more like they are going back to crime fighting, admittedly, you know, costume criminals. Uh-huh. And the bouncer. What what a way <laughs> for Batman to be killed by the bouncer. What? <laughs> not, not the Joker, just... It's, yes. It's, <laughs> Dreadful, so embarrassing, Bruce. This, uh, <laughs> this total randomer. I mean, I, I'm guessing the bouncer never appeared again. He only made one further appearance, in, and that was in. Oh, the really? Age. Yes. So, okay. Not really the big hit of 1966. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but at least he did come back. He wasn't quite the one off joke villain that they, they thought he had. He did make one more appearance. What else was he in? He was in Batman number 336 from 1981. It's a. Uh, Oh, right, okay. It's a Bob Rosakis story, but it's scripted by Roy Thomas, but it's got great uh, Garcia Lopez art in it, which is quite cool. Interesting. Lots of sort of 60s villains come back in this one. You've got the Clue Master, Spellbinder, the Monarch of Menace, and of course right. the Bouncer. So, yeah. Interesting. Do they all get killed? I'm not saying. <laughs> it sounds like that whole thing Marvel did in the 80s with, I can't remember what he was called, Justice is Served guy. They went around mopping up all the, the lame villains that hadn't been used for ages. Scourge, Scourge of the Underworld. I went round to the bar with no name and took out about 30 villains. Yes. Turn on D-Century and all that. And that guy, that yellow guy that looked like a bit of a rip-off of the Mirror Master. Hey, Mirage. Now, would it surprise you to find out that the name The Bouncer had been used previously in the Golden Age? Of course there's a Golden Age Bouncer. No, not one Golden Age character, but two. Right. There was a villain who fought... Bullet Man in the pages of Master Comics. Okay. Uh, he basically was a thug who had shoes that had giant springs in them. Very exciting stuff there. Needless to say, he only made one appearance. Uh huh. But the other one was a hero who actually had his own series in Fox Comics and appeared in some of their other titles. And he was created by our old friend Robert Kaniger. Robert Kaniger, again. Yes, in fact, he's the first character that uh, Kaniger is credited as having created. And it's as convoluted a character as you would expect from Robert Kaniger. He has his roots in Greek mythology, and once again it's Hercules, because he is based on Antaeus, who fought Hercules during the Twelve Labours of Hercules. Hmm. And it's a descendant of Antaeus, who's a sculptor, who sculpts a statue of Antaeus. And whenever his descendant, Adam Antaeus Jr., is in danger, the sculpture comes to life, and to his rescue. (laughs) And funnily enough, the sculpture bounces about the place. It's right. <laughs> it comes to life as a flesh and blood man with a purple toga bouncing around fighting crime. Hilarity ensues. Anyway, anyway, back to Batman. And of course, another cool thing about this story is this is the creative team that gave us Flash of Two Worlds. Gardner Fox writing, Carmine on art duties, and Julie Schwartz editing. So yeah, it is the first appearance of the Earth Two in a in a Batman comic, but uh, it shouldn't be any surprise yeah. to anyone with these creators. I think they missed the trick. They should have had that in the cover. It might have given away some of the surprise. It would have a bit. <laughs> no, you're right. And it's interesting because we have said how oft times the Superman family comics have been racking up all, all these countless multiple offs with very uh-huh. little continuity. But this is, mm-hmm. again, it's Gardner and Julie, eyes on the prize. Yeah. You know, they, they're obviously the ones who are paying attention to the Earth 2 concept uh-huh. and maybe trying to get a bit of consistency. Yep, building it all up nicely, like stacks of Lego. Fantastic. The cover flags up Batman being killed and the opening uh-huh. splash page flags up Batman being killed. But essentially, the story plays out and we see you know, the real events and that doesn't happen. So to, to all yeah. intents and purposes, it's a bit of an imaginary story. It's a bit of a cheat, isn't it? The way they're using the cover and the splash panel to sell it because we then get a little four-page epilogue 
where Gardner Fox going, ooh, what if this happened? I mean, it's I, I'm not a fan of imaginary stories. We made a, a decision that we weren't going to do imaginary stories in this podcast, but it's yeah. it's the mention of Earth 2 that really makes it relevant to us because this is the first time that the Earth 2 Batman has actually been mentioned in a story. Mm-hmm. And also the fact it's Gardner Fox, which brings us back to the, the Earth Prime conceit, which we've mentioned a couple of times before. Yes. It's quite interesting that the Earth 2 Batman, when he turns up, he is wearing the Earth 1 Batman's costume. Ah! The Earth 2 Batman has, for the only time in his career, the yellow oval around his bat symbol. It's interesting because going forward, there's quite a lot of stories that we'll do with Batman, stuff like Brave and the Bold, when we'll do stories that are set during or involve characters from World War II, and the lack thereof, or in some cases the appearance of the, the yellow oval, becomes a useful sort of aid in determining if this is the Earth 2 Batman or if this is the Earth 1 Batman. Despite the fact, obviously, in the podcast we've done a few stories where it's been ostensibly the Earth 1 Batman and he hasn't had the yellow oval, going forward from this point it's probably safe to say that if you're going to see a Batman and he doesn't have the yellow oval, it's the Batman of Earth 2. But if he does, it's the Batman of Earth 1. Absolutely, yes. Yep. And of course, when he comes back over, he brings Alfred with him. Now, of course, we've talked about this before briefly in Titanus Search, that at this period in the comics, Alfred was dead. At least they thought he was dead, but actually he was an evil villain called the Outsider. Right. Superpowers, and the whole thing's a big, big, big mess. (laughs) And everyone likes to forget about that (laughs) because it's just rubbish. So yes, we've got it. We've got Alfred back, which is great. So are we going to do the reader reaction to this Batman story now then? Yes. Moving on to Batman's Hotline from issue 351 of Detective Comics. Uh, The first letter says, Dear Editor, when I looked at the cover of the January Detective Comics, pow, you could have knocked me over with a feather duster. Batman killed. I sat there shocked to the core. The cover was fabulous. The face of Robin showed real emotion. It's not often that an artist can convey such utter sadness as was impressed on the Boy Wonders features. Also, the inset of Batman on the front page of the newspaper was marvellous. It was so much like a real photo. As for the story itself, it was excitingly written and introducing author Gardner Fox to the reader in such a unique manner was masterful. I really enjoyed the idea of what if in your stories. If you want to run such a series, you have my vote says Brian Stewart from Northumberland, England. Oh, wow. That's unusual. There we are. Brilliant. Uh-huh. The editorial response to that one then is, when we asked for reader reaction to the what-if concept introduced in The Strange Death of Batman, we anticipated a considerable increase in the usual amount of mail. Considerable doesn't do justice to the actual response. It ran into the thousands. The tally ran up about 73 in favour, so you can look for a follow-up what-if yarn sometime in the future. In the space remaining, we shall pro and con you with samples of the mail. Brian is asking for a What If series. He's asking the wrong company because yes. <laughs> Marvel were to bring out a What If series <laughs> in the 70s and then again in the late 80s. And I've done one shots ever since, pretty much. And obviously the What If Marvel series was very successful for yep. them and it ran for a good mm-hmm. long time. The second series got into triple figures, ran for uh-huh. years. I don't tend to think of DC doing What If stories at any point really at all, do you? No. The sort of DC equivalent really is Elseworlds, but they're not really what-ifs. They're more kind of broad in their their outlook, as opposed to changing one aspect of something. Yeah, I mean, the Marvel series would do... I mean, some examples where what if the Fantastic Four got different powers, or what if Captain America was revived in the modern day, what if Spider-Man stopped the burglar, Uh that sort of thing, and what if Spider-Man saved Gwen Stacy, those sort of things. What if Phoenix Mm -hmm. hadn't died? Really specific turns on on instant stories, rather than the Elseworlds, which, you know, as you say, were sort of ground-level up, Mm -hmm. new versions of looking at stuff. Fascinating. Right, the next letter says... Dear Editor, the January Detective was very disappointing to me. 
The story started off at a good and promising clip. The downfall of the story was the presentation of the What If Room. This sideline to the story greatly degraded the suspense and excitement built up by the preceding pages of the yarn. It drained the reality from the story and the belief compiled from subjection to the presence of a story for entertainment. Blimey. All writers try to write their stories in such a way that the reader feels as though he's in its presence. Gardner Fox and John Broom and the other gifted writers of all the other fine DC magazines are no exception. And they succeed in doing so. I don't think that anything worse could have been done to ruin the image presented by the story. Blimey. Well, in answer of your question of whether your readers would like to see future what-if stories, you mm. can readily guess my answer. No. So says Alan Traherne from Covington, Indiana. Hang on, before we go further, that Alan was de- very much dead set. He didn't like it at all there, did he? He's a no. I think we can definitely say it's not an undecided. Yes. <laughs> the next letter says, Dear Editor, I'm a terrible correspondent when it comes to giving remarks pertaining to the quality of a comic mag. I have 2,000 comics in my collection and I've read them all, but none was out of the extraordinary for me to sit down and write till Detective 347. The strange death of Batman really shook me up. No doubt this story will surely become a collector's item. You've got my vote for more what-if stories. David Esser, Wexford, PA. I wonder if Roy Thomas was sat at home thinking that he liked the what-if concept Possibly. and that it could justify an entire series. I almost misread that as David Essex. That would have been quite interesting if he had been writing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been amazing. Um, right. Do you want to do the next one? Dear editor, the surprise ending of The Strange Death of Batman was just that. A surprising clever twist on an otherwise mediocre plot. The idea of having a what-if room is unique. And although I too have often tried to imagine what life would be like if certain things happened or failed to occur, it was a novel, amusing and interesting idea. But as to the prospects of having more what-if stories, I am less enthusiastic. In this issue, the theme served as a shock device, a clever and relatively harmless way to substantiate a sensational cover that plainly depicted a dead Batman. However, future what-if tales would lead to repetition, because readers would be expecting that the story was imaginary, and any surprise or shock ending would be lost. Therefore, I applaud its use this one time, but discourage any future stories of this type, says David Colton from Mount Vernon, New York. Obviously not a Marvel fan, possibly, David's. No. <laughs> He's making the valid point, though, about how I've said myself that I'm not a fan of imaginary mm, stories. Yeah. What If was always interesting, and the Marvel title was always interesting because I think it dealt with specific... Like, I remember early on in Volume 2, there was a really good one where um the alien costume, mm-hmm. Venom, kind of overtook Spidey. And then there was one where Inferno went a different way or Atlantis Attack yeah. went a different way. The Marvel series worked because it was taking specific events. Mm-hmm. This is different, obviously, because it's going, it's telling one story and then saying, oh, but what if this story went in a different way? And I can imagine that would be a little less satisfying yeah. as an ongoing mm-hmm. thing, you know? Okay, I'll do the next one then. Dear Editor, well, as they say, you have created the straw that broke the camel's back with Detective 347. It starts out as a promising story, then continues to a very disappointing ending. I realise that you cannot kill off the hero of the mag, it's just not done. But every story with promise and impact in the DC line can't be imaginary. It seems that the only time something really outstanding is put forth by you in regards to your continuing characters, it is imaginary. This is a generalisation, your war comics and usually Batman are the exception. In Batman, the real stories are the best of the lot. Please do not lower your high standard here by the use of what-if stories. I sincerely hope you will discontinue this type of story as it is a disappointing 
and cheap way to sell magazines. And that's from Martin Schwartz, Kew Gardens, New York. That's another negative, very emphatically so. Yeah, it's interesting that they are showcasing the negative responses Yeah, here. interesting. Next one. Dear editor, with the January Detective, you have shown how excellent and realistically plotted a comic magazine story can be. The Strange Death of Batman was probably the greatest story to appear in comicdom for some time, for several reasons. To begin with, the introduction of the master villain. I'm going to hit pause there. Sorry, the bouncer. Uh, <laughs> isn't really, <laughs> doesn't really uh, warrant the, the greatest comic of all time. Anyway, uh, unpause on, on the letter here. The introduction of the master villain was depicted in a manner not often seen in your stories. With it, the reader was helplessly thrust into a tale of vivid imagination, which became impossible to put down. From that point on, the action started rolling and gradually built up into a mind-staggering climax. On page 11, when the fatal bullet struck Batman, I could almost see before my eyes his agonised face and mortally wounded body collapsing lifelessly in the streets. And then finally... You have the Batman and Alfred of Earth 2 appear, which was so unexpected that it nearly jolted me out of my seat. So says Mitchell Sternbach from Albany, New York. There we go. The wow, he's obviously he a fan. It is an interesting idea. And like, I mean, imagine they'd had the balls to just sort of continue it, and then mm -hmm. Batman from that point onward was the Earth 2 Batman, and they just picked up from there. He was just 20 years older, you know. <laughs> it kind of puts me in mind of some of the rumblings that I've heard about what they've wanted to do with 5G and all the continuity mm, MacGuffins, yeah. the, the, the speculation of recently. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting story, and obviously we've covered it because of, really, because of the mention of the Earth 2 Batman and also yeah, the Garden and of Fox. Fox. I mean, it's, it's an interesting idea, but I don't think it would have worked as a long-term thing. The final letter then says, Dear Editor, Chapter 2 of The Strange Death of Batman was a dud. Whether author Fox sits in his room and what-ifs about each story he writes is his business, I believe you should cut out this type of imaginary story. And that's from David Freeman in the Bronx in New York. I kind of agree with David. I don't think they'd work too well. So Gardner Fox made an appearance in that story. But of course, around about this time, other DC staffers, uh, writers and artists, were appearing in other titles, mostly just in cameos or in small scenes. But you've been looking into this, David? Yeah. We've already talked a while ago about Initial Strange Adventure that featured um, Gardner Fox and Julie Schwartz and Sigrid. As Pete says, there's been a few other cameos around this time that that have kind of come to our attention after we sort of started working on the podcast. So this is a little bit of a catch-up, similar to when we did Wonder Woman issue 100 a few episodes ago. So mm -hmm. the first one we're going to mention, there were three issues of the Sea Devils. And quite an interesting idea. The Sea Devils basically, they were almost like an underwater challenge of the unknown. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, it's very much the whole Jacques Cousteau sort of underwater adventurer sort of style. This is the era of Urban Allen's voice to the bottom of the sea. Yes. Uh -huh. All that sort of thing. So I, I used to have quite a few issues of the Sea Devils. I don't have any of them anymore. And I can't remember when I get rid of them. And I'm really annoyed at myself <laughs> <laughs> for, not, for not still having them. Basically, over a sequence of three issues, they were visited by some DC Comics writers and artists to kind of just have their stories witnessed so that they could be written about and drawn about. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure if that means that the Sea Devils were on Earth Prime or that there were Earth One versions of some of these writers and artists. Uh -huh. We'll leave that for the, the conscience of the individual listener. But basically in Sea Devils issue 13, which came out in July 1963, dated October 63, Joe Kubert, Gene Colan, Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito all appeared. Mm -hmm. And Joe Kubert saw Dane of the Sea Devils defeat a pirate submarine to avenge the honour of his ancestor, which is quite interesting. And then Gene Colon, who um Colon, <laughs> I always say that. Gene Colon, who I know best as a Daredevil artist mm -hmm. for Marvel more than anything else, he sees the Sea Devils travel back in time 
to help a Greek king win against a Persian sort of sailing fleet, which is quite exciting. And the final story in issue 13, the mighty team of Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito witness the sea devils get kidnapped by aliens, which ends up giving oh. a bit of insight into the, yeah, into the mystery of the Mary Celeste. So there we go. Ah. Issue 14 of Sea Devils, which came out in September 63, dated December 63, features Irv Novik. And it's an interesting story because we've done a few Superman stories featuring Hercules, but this is another story featuring another Hercules. Of course. And this scuffles with another version of Neptune. And then issue 15 of Sea Devils, which came out on the 27th of November 63, dated February 64, also features Irv Novik. And it's a story where Judy and Nick of the Sea Devils, their dad has a new submarine which he's built and it goes missing. And the Sea Devils have to undergo experimental surgery to make them more like fish so they won't <laughs> get it from the really yeah, wow. from the really deep water that the submarine is, ends up in. So again, that's some other examples of some artists. I mean, that's quite an interesting sort of sequence in Sea Devils for a few issues. And the other one that we're going to mention, and this is interesting because this guy's going to be back in a story completely yes. focused on himself at some point. Issue 29 of Green Lantern, which came out in April the 9th, 1964, dated June 64, deals with the character of Black Hand. And in a similar way to the way that some of the captions in the Batman story we've just done were sort of narrated by Gardner Fox, uh-huh. there is a whole panel where this Green Lantern story grinds to a halt and we see Gil Kane sat at his drawing board. Mm-hmm. And Gil says... But who, you ask, is this man? What is his game? Well, reader, ordinarily we don't like to reveal the identity of a villain so early. But in the case of such an extraordinary criminal, extraordinary methods are called for. So, meet William Hand. And we then get the next couple of pages of this Green Lantern story almost narrated to the camera by the character of Black Hand. But then it continues and Green Lantern gets cut in half and bloody blah and things and stuff. But there's no nothing else from Gil in that story. Mm-hmm. But it's another example, if you like, of the fourth wall being broken, which is obviously what we've seen with Gardner Fox in this detective comic story. And that's an interesting character trait that carries on with Black Hand in future appearances. Like, he does a whole big thing to the camera or the reader when he appears in some Bronze Age Flash stories. And I think he does it as well again in future Green Lantern stories as well. But yeah, that's quite interesting. And that's way before Deadpool or She-Hulk or anyone else breaking the fourth ambush mm-hmm. bug. Way before all them, he's uh, talking directly mm-hmm. to the reader. It's quite good. I wonder if Black Hand was aware of his nature as a comic book character, or if he was just a nutter. Well, he certainly ended up being a nutter, <laughs> post-crisis. Yeah, he's the focus of the whole Blackest Night crossover about ten years ago, wasn't he? Absolutely, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed Blackest Night. I was completely into it. I read every single crossover. I did a very good job of keeping up with it and only letting some of the stuff build up to read all in one go. But it was mm-hmm. great, cause, you know, we got one-off revivals of Pyro Shazam and Starman and Phantom Stranger. It was... It was great. It was. It had that whole sort of nastiness that DC sort of had for a while, but at the same time, it was doing an awful lot of stuff that pushed the buttons of old school fanboys like me. There we are. Good stuff. So that's our thoughts on the story, and also uh, a few bonus DC staffer cameos. So, what did you think? What do you think about this whole what if situation? Do you think it's a gore? Do you think there should be more? If so, build a time machine and go back and uh, t- <laughs> tell people at DC you want more. Gardner, give me more what if stories. Quickly publish that title before Marvel do. Anyway, if you don't have access to a time machine, then you can drop us an email at the Earth 2 podcast at gmail.com and tell us what you would like to see as a what if in this time period. Yeah. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook. We're at the Earth 2 podcast because we'll be posting up some highlights from this story and maybe a couple of those other DC staff cameos. And also on Twitter, we are at podcast underscore Earth 2. And make sure you follow us on Instagram as well for more bonus content. And again, we're at the Earth 2 podcast there. Absolutely. That was an interesting one. It's 
a, a real one-off, I think, as far as the stuff that we'll be talking about, really. Absolutely, yes. So, that ends our discussion this week. I've been Peter. And I've been David. And you've been listening to... The Earth 2 Podcast. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinate set for Earth Prime. So this panel shows the back... Ah, I nearly said the back cave. That'd be funny. The back cave screeching to a halt.